the like foundational scripture that the Lord has been stirring me in for the last, gosh, it's got to be at least four weeks. Um, sounds a lot like that's that's the problem. You hear a hurricane in the mic. Yeah, I know. I I love you for it, but yeah, heavenly thunder. I wish. Think about the words we heard from the young ones today. A light bulb that's on or it's off. A volcano. This is, this is a, a, a chunk. This is like the, some of the aha of the scripture that the Lord's been really, really pressing, excuse me, pressing on me. And he was saying to them, this is from Mark chapter 4, and he was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or a volcano to have a lid or a light bulb to be turned off? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, take care what you listen to, or take care how you listen. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given besides. For whoever has, to him shall be more shall be given, and, to, and whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. That's, that's the conclusion of the parable of the seeds in the soil. The seed is revelation. God sows seed into the soil of our hearts. What we do with that seed reflects back the condition of our hearts. So if there's no, um, no fruitful result from having had that seed placed in our hearts, then what he says here is, Take care how you listen to this revelation because the measure that you receive it with is the measure that you're going to get back to him who has some response, some positive response from the revelation. More revelation will be given to him to the one who does not. Even what he has will be taken away. What's taken away? Even the sense of the revelation. Um, It's so awesome to me. I wish I could start in the middle, but I'm not going to. I want to just tell you what the Lord's been telling me, but I'm going to start at the beginning and we'll just have to get there in a couple minutes, okay? All right, so um, this, I, I, don't, I, I don't typically almost ever have like a sermon series. And I, you know, God may just figure that my capacity is so small that if he's going to do a series, he's just got to give it to me one piece at a time because first in, first out, you know, just lose it if he tries to give it to me all at once or maybe it's just not how he operates in me. I don't know, but sometimes... One message after a message after a message, when you look backwards, looks a lot like a series of messages. And that's what I think has been happening here the last three or four weeks. So um, in the first week, the sense was, with spiritual gifts being kind of the focus, that everybody is gifted. But not everybody is flowing in gifts. And, And if you look at that verse that I just read, in that context, and you believe that everyone is gifted, they've, been, they've received something from the Lord, but they've not actually done anything with it, the Bible kind of teaches use it or lose it. Either you take what he gives you and, and you respond with it to bring about fruitful return for him and for his kingdom, or you don't. And, and an example, a, a, a scripture example of that is like the parable of the talents, Right? There's three people in this parable, and they're each given something by their master. And and it's important to recognize the way Jesus speaks to the people in the parables. One person is always like the king or the master, and the other one's referred to as a slave. We're not the king or the master in the parables. We're the slave. And that's a really good way for us to see ourselves in Christ as slaves, because this is the life of service. The next one is still a life of service, but that's the life of reward. Even though he blesses us in this life, this is the life of service. So in the parable of the talents, each of these slaves is given something to invest on behalf of the king. The king goes away on a trip. Jesus was here, right? He, He left, he sent his spirit, he's coming back. He's invested in us, his spirit, specifically different talents, different gifts that he's given us. And each one was given a different measure it's because the Bible says that you operate to the measure of your faith. So you don't have to worry about, you know, you've got to be Billy Graham or you've got to be Reinhard Bonnke because that may not be the, the measure of faith that God has given to you. But you have to operate in the measure of faith that he's given you in the giftings that, that he's given you. So the first guy, 
has five talents, five measures that he's given by the king. He goes out and he does something with it, and he now has ten. He returns five additional ones, and the king is so pleased with this one. Then the second one was only given two. And he went out and did what he could with the two, and he returned an additional two. Now he has four to return back to the master. But the third one only had one. Now, the first two, the master didn't say, wow, you're a really awesome one because you brought me back five, and you're just, you know, you're less awesome, but you're pretty good because you only brought me back two. No, he rewarded them based upon the return on the measure that he'd given them. They both got the same reward. But the third one said, whoa, you know, I'm afraid, and you're a tough guy, and, you know, I don't want to have a problem and maybe lose your talent, so I just buried it in the ground. Here's your talent back without any return. That one was called wicked and lazy and was sent to the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth or, or some other reference to a hell-sounding kind of place. What's the difference? He was invested in by the king. He returned nothing back to the king. And, and in our world, in, in our real-life perspective, we don't even have to be talented because it's the anointing that brings about the return, but we've got to actually operate in the anointing to bring back some return on what God has given us. So that was the first week. It was kind of use it or lose it. You should be concerned that you have a gift. And then the, the kind of stronger message was we have people in our church that have physical bad stuff in their bodies that's, that's painful, it's, it's, it just so dramatically limits their lives. And there's this gift called healing and there's this gift called miracles. And we should be crying out for these gifts because we love these people that we know that are struggling and we understand that there's a gift that we could earnestly desire that if God should give it to us, we could end that pain and suffering. Okay, week one. Week two then um, was talking about um, faithfulness. And, And the parables in those spoke to Jesus leaving and he's coming... I'm not quite sure how I'm doing that. Maybe it's my collar. It's just swirling. Okay, that's all right. little thunder. Um, it speaks to faithfulness. So he's gone now, and he's left us with some responsibility, and he's coming back. When he comes back, will we be ready for his return? Will we be found faithful upon his return? So many parables that speak to, to um, faithfulness. The eternal implication then is that when Jesus comes back, specifically in this case, to rapture, to bring his church up with him, will we be found ready? If we're found ready, we get raptured. We're good to go. If we're not found ready, we don't get to go. That's what the parables teach. And and it says you never know when he's going to come. He's going to come like a thief in the night. So the implication of that is you can't take a break on ready. Well, let's just hope that Jesus doesn't come back till a week from Friday because I got some not kind of Jesus stuff that I'm going to participate in, and let's just hope that he doesn't come then. He says, you better not have that attitude because you don't get to know when I'm coming. Nobody knows. Not the Son, not the angels. Only the Father knows when he's going to send Jesus back. The eternal implication of that one again was, when he comes, if you're not ready, you don't go. You get to participate in this thing called the tribulation, which... I don't want to be part of. I don't know what your end times theology is, but, but the tribulation is not going to be a pleasant time for anybody. Okay, and then finally, um, faithfulness, being prepared, should indicate fruitful, fruit, <laughs> fruitful, fruitfulness. Faithfulness should indicate fruitfulness. And then the primary scripture from that one and this is when I'll, I'll, I'll kind of use this as a transition into what I think the Lord wants us to hear this week, is from John chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Now, this is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the true vine. And he's painting a picture uh, of um, a natural picture to make a spiritual statement. So it, you can think of a, like a grapevine with branches and then grapes, or you could think of a big tree, like an apple tree with a, you know, a big strong trunk and roots and then branches, and then off the branches are the apples, the fruit. Okay? Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So Jesus, God, is ultimately looking for a church that's fruitful. Church, not like church on the street or the Lutheran church on the street, but but a church, his very body that is producing fruit unto the kingdom. 
And he says, my father is the vine dresser and I'm the vine. So, so you might have a branch on the vine, maybe me. And, and, in, and in some regards, it's fruitful. But in other regards, there's no fruit. It, it's it's kind of like progressive sanctification, if you think about it, bringing you more and more and more into the likeness of the one who is absolutely fruitful, which is Jesus. And those parts of my life, of my person, that are not fruitful to God in his kingdom, he prunes them away. Kind of like you, you, know, you put the, the gold into the, into the thing and you, the thing, I can't remember what it's called, the crucible maybe. You make it real hot and the, God, the gold is just miserable. It's so hot in there, but the yucky stuff comes to the top and gradually it gets scraped away, gets scraped away, gets cleared away. And the, the guy who's doing the refining knows when the gold is ready because he looks down and the reflection of himself is perfect to himself. So as, as we're being refined, as we're being pruned like a, like a branch on a vine, the, the vine dresser is looking. Does it look just like my son yet? Nope, nope, not, not fruitful as it should be. A little more, a little more, a little more. That's what's going on. But he says there are branches in him that are actually in Jesus. So that implication there is that they're, they're Christians because they're in Christ. You're only in one of two places, biblically. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. If you're in Adam, your destination is wrath. If you're in Christ, your destination is glory. But there's no in-between in. There's only in Adam or in Christ. Jesus describes these branches that are producing no fruit as being in him. So they're not in Adam. They're in Christ. But they're producing no fruit. What happens to those branches? They're cut off. They're taken from him, ultimately gathered up and thrown in the fire. Okay, so he goes on. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So again, for us to produce any kind of eternal fruit, any kingdom fruit, the stuff that's not going to get burned up through the test, we have to abide in Christ because the only way to produce the fruit of the kingdom is to abide in the king. Okay, then he, he closes this, at least the part I'm going to read to you. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Is that a metaphor for going to hell or not? I don't know. Some people think it is. Some people think it's not. Personally, I think it is. I think he's very clear in what he's saying. You have a call on your life. You're like a branch that's supposed to produce fruit. If you're producing a little fruit, but not as much as you could, don't worry about that because my father's going to take care of that part for you and prune you such that you will produce more fruit. But if you're a branch in me that produces no fruit, I don't fuss with that branch. That branch's place is the fire. Okay. A scripture I didn't read last week, but I think I'm going to read this week that's still in that same context is Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. Um, Jesus, again, and he again began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does, his, why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, let it alone, sir, for this year too, or let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Most of the commentators will tell you that 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 parable speaks directly to Israel at the time of Jesus. But they'll also tell you that the principles associated with that parable are applicable to the church today. So here's the, the things that um, I see in that parable that are relative, relevant to the messages that, that I've been speaking to you. Um, two things. First, there is no place in God's garden, in the kingdom, for a tree that produces no fruit. Ultimately, even the guy who's standing up for this fruitless tree says, give it one more year, and if it, if it doesn't produce any fruit in that year, get it out of the garden. We'll dig it up and throw it away. But... There's two things that you see about the process. One, that, that God is willing to put in effort, right? Uh, one of the Corinthians, I think it's 2 Corinthians, maybe it's not even Corinthians, I don't know. But it says that God is at work within you to will and to work for his good pleasure, to produce fruit. So despite my kicking and screaming and my selfishness and, and my flesh and all that kind of stuff, God is working inside of me 
not only to do stuff, but to want to do stuff, to will and to work, to desire to do work that's pleasing to him. So he's making effort on our behalf that we would be fruitful. And the second thing is, one of the fruits of the Spirit is patience. And, and the, the Spirit is God. So you're seeing that particular characteristic of God in this parable is like he's giving time. You know, God is not slow like you think. To him, you know, a, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. He hopes that no one would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And this is kind of a picture of that. So if, if we were to look in the mirror of our fruitfulness and see nothing, we likely haven't been cut off yet because he's patient, not willing that any would um, perish, but he has limits to his patience, and we should be, we should be um, aware of that, okay? All right. So I thought this week was going to be the week where I started to have this conversation about, all right, you know, faithfulness, fruitfulness, test yourself, see if you're in the faith. What does that look like, and how do we get that? And I really think I know, but I couldn't even articulate it to myself all week long. I mean, I have scriptures and stuff this long you know, in my iPad for today, but I, I just can't seem to get it. And then this morning, I'm trying to get it put together, and, you know, five in the morning on Sunday seems to be a ser- good sermon writing time for me. And all of a sudden, the Lord brings this scriptures to my mind, and, and I'm so... I'm, I'm, reading the scriptures and I'm pondering the scriptures and I can feel him starting to show me something. And then he reminds me of a, a meeting I had. I had lunch with a guy this week who's a pr- very prophetic person. He very much um, has a seeing eye, pictures and prophecies and things. And he's telling me that the Lord's got him plugged into like three churches. And in all three of these churches, he's seeing the same kind of stuff. And he said, Lord, I don't understand what's going on. It's like nobody's paying any attention. There's no real fruitfulness. And the pastors are talking to him and they're asking him questions. And you know, he's gaining a place in these churches. And he said he was praying and the Lord said um, that they have a stupor. Remember in the parable I read to you? If you have eyes to see and ears to hear, if you, if you read in the New Testament, you see that God had, had placed kind of a veil over Israel so that the fullness of the Gentiles could come in before he lifts the veil, the stupor off of them. All of a sudden, um, I remember what he said, and I'm honestly, I'm, I'm preaching these messages. Like last Sunday, if you were here, you remember I said, listen, this one's going to kind of grind you a little bit. It's probably going to make you a little upset. If it if you hear it with an ear that's like, whoa, is he talking to me? Didn't seem to bug anybody. Nobody seemed to care. Only person, I know Margie does because we've had that conversation a lot. She's like, you know, you're not making me very comfortable. And my wife, we were talking, she says, Pat, man, those verses, that scripture, it scares me to death. So, you know, I, I know there's two people and, I, and I'm not painting with a brush that says everybody. But I would have expected somebody to come back and say, you know, come to me and say, take it back. Stop it. That's not how it is. You don't understand. There used to be people in the church that would tell me, you don't understand grace. And, and they did get right up in my face because it, I was offending them or their sensibility towards grace. God bless them. I love them because I want people, if they think I'm not preaching the truth, to, to, to help me with that. But, but really, nobody seemed to be offended or concerned. And that's when that word stupor kind of hit me in the chest. It's like, whoa, Lord, is there a stupor? Is that, is that what's happening? Is that, that, you know, people are like, well, you know, that was interesting perspective. You know, a couple nice points there, some good scriptures, tied them together. You know, yeah, that was okay. What, where are we going to go for lunch today? The dictionary defines a stupor as a condition of greatly dulled or completely suspended sense or sensibility. So, so if, you, if we have a stupor, it's like, like a drunken person almost. You know, um, hey, you, you got your hand in the fire there. I think it's going to burn you. Oh, wow. Yeah, there, looky there. Ow. It's like you couldn't sense the heat because you're too drunk, too whatever. A stupor could come from the Lord and it could come from the enemy. And I don't know if there's a stupor in here or not. But I think there may be, and I honestly have no sense for if there is, whether God's done it 
or whether the enemy has brought us into a stupor. Um, But I think about that scripture. The next thing that happened was the Lord reminded me of that scripture. To him who has, more will be given. But to him who doesn't have, even what he has will be taken away. That sounds like a stupor. Like God gives you revelation, but you don't have any, it doesn't represent any value. Not, I mean, to you, to somebody, right? The person in the parable. That God would, would plant this seed of revelation into the soil of their heart. And they're like, eh, you know, that was interesting. What's for lunch? Versus, oh my gosh. And, and then, Lord, what would I do with this? How do I tend to that seed? How do I cause that seed to become fruitful in my life and then fruitful in your kingdom? The, the first example feels like somebody who's under a stupor. Anyway, so I'm connecting all these dots and I can start to see it in what the Lord has given me. So, That's where I'm going to take you today. (laughs) My note, I didn't read it, but I I thought this week would come answers to the stuff from last week, but I've been all over the place. One of the places I was this week was, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get right to the edge of answers, and I'm going to just say amen and be done and say, you know what? They're right in here between Matthew chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 20, whatever. Somebody call me when you think you found one. That isn't really a good heart, but that's a little bit how I was feeling. You know, it's it's in there. Instead of being hand-fed, you know, baby milk, baby milk, get in there and find some answers, and then you come back and report them, and, and then you can preach the message on the answers because you're pressing into the Word of God, because you're pressing into the Lord, because you've been shook by this thing a little bit. Anyway, God got me off of that one. But that's where I've been this week, just all over the place with, I don't know what to do with this, God. Okay. My sense is that we're not ready for that particular message. Me, because I'm not sure that I even understand it as well as I thought I did, nor could I articulate it well, and and some portion of us aren't ready to receive it yet. And it needs to come onto soil that's ready to receive it. Okay, so then today is this. There's tension. There's tension in in the church. There's tension in Christianity. There's tension in the gospel that I think is there on purpose, but it's like this. The tension is between faithfulness or fruitfulness and saving grace. Faithfulness and fruitfulness, right? You wicked, lazy slave, you branch that's in me, you produce no fruit into the fire with you. And grace that says, you can't do any works to be in me, And how is it that you're doing this? Why why is it that there feels like, if you read the scriptures, that I didn't need to do anything but believe to be saved, but then the scriptures keep telling me if I don't do something, I'm not saved. That's the tension. Okay, let me give you some scriptures that would show us that. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So if you are saved, you are saved by grace, not of anything of yourself. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. No works, no Mother Teresa, no nothing. You only get saved by God's grace and your response to that grace. Romans three twenty one through 24. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So there's this righteousness, right? What's When you're found in Adam, you are not found righteous before God. When you're found in Christ, when he looks at you, you're found righteous. That's the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It's not your righteousness or my righteousness. It's his righteousness. And if you've been here a while, you've, you've heard the picture of the, of the stained robe versus the perfectly white robe. You can't wash the sin stain out of your garment. You need a new garment. And the only new garment that's not like that is his. So your righteousness, it's witnessed all of the prophets of what we would call the Old Testament, all of the law that God gave to Moses, witnesses too, none of it disagrees with this righteousness from God, of God, that's available through faith in Christ Jesus. Not by works, not by anything you could do if you wanted to. By faith. Okay, so here's where the tension starts. John 15, verses 1 and 2. Read it earlier. 
I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Well, wait a minute. It didn't say anything in those other verses about me being saved, me being in Christ Jesus, that I had to bear any kind of fruit. So why is it that if I don't bear fruit, even though I'm in Christ Jesus and I got there because I wasn't bearing any fruit, I'd broken the law, I'd sinned against God, how come all of a sudden now I got to work to have what I didn't have to work to get? I don't know. Tension. First John 3, 9 and 10, they get better. No one, who is, no one who is born of God practices sin because his, God's seed, abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Well, hang on a minute. So I do have to do some works in order to be in God. I have to practice, right? He didn't say is righteous, because then we could assign Jesus' righteousness to that statement. He said practices righteousness. So the one who doesn't practice righteousness... And and practicing righteousness is a double-edged sword, right? Practicing righteousness is not doing bad things, but it's also doing good things. So it's not just the absence of doing bad that equals righteousness. It's the presence of doing good that equals righteousness. So there is some activity associated, some doing, some working that's associated with righteousness. And if you don't practice righteousness, you don't belong to God. Who do you belong to then? Devil. Adam. Not in Christ. Tension. Okay. First John 2.29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. You can't see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. You can't work your way into born again. But you know that God is righteousness and that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Born again. 1 John 3, 7. This one's a good one. Little children. Listen to this word, deceives. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. So the way that we get righteous before God is not to do anything righteous, but to be robed in him who is righteous. Yet, somehow we have to do this thing which is righteous in order to be continually found in him who is righteous. Can you see the tension? It like To me, it, like, it doesn't make sense. It can't make sense the way it's been presented, largely. People will say, you know, um, you're works-based. I'll say, I don't think so. But there's so much scripture that speaks, faith without works is dead. It's dead faith. It's living faith that brings you into a relationship with Christ, not dead faith. That's just a bonus scripture. That, is, that, that doesn't even begin to touch the scriptures where the apostles are speaking to the churches, to the believers, to the people that they led to the Lord when they planted churches, Paul and, and Peter, that say, people that practice this stuff shall not inherit the kingdom. So without even looking at those which seem to say the same thing, listen, you can't do those bad things and inherit the kingdom, but wait a minute. I believed in Jesus. How can both be true? How can we have the righteousness of God aside from doing works, yet without works, the practice of righteousness, we don't have God? Here's, here's where I think we get an answer. And, and you may not agree with this answer, but it's something that, that, that should cause you to think. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. Are you with me so far? I mean, seriously, are you? I'm, okay. Okay. You know what? Let no one deceive you or don't be deceived. Where did I just read that? Little children, make sure no one deceives you. This is just maybe just me. But you know what? In this context, what the, I think that deception is. How many of you heard of like the um, hyper grace message? The, you know, the, the super great, greasy grace. Listen, you're, you're found in Christ Jesus. You're hidden in the rock. You know, you can't be ripped from his fingers. There's no way you can. 
That, I think, is the deceptive message that ignores all these other scriptures that say, if you don't practice righteousness before God, you are not righteous. Okay, here, here's where I think we get some, some um, revelation as to why, what that tension is. Ephesians 5, 6 through 10. Again, it starts with, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Can I just stop for a minute there? I'm, a, I'm like, people will say, no, 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 you just call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. And I, I, I say, no, you've got to look at that in the context of all of the way salvation is presented. And that you have to confess Jesus as Lord, master of your life, and you have to believe in him as the propitiatory offering for your sin debt to God. And I used to see that scripture, the sons of disobedience, as people who wouldn't submit to the lordship of Christ as one of the conditions unto their salvation. I'm starting to think that that's not what this context of this scripture is. I think the obedience that this scripture is speaking to is to the gospel. It's, it's a little bit bigger than confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. So think of it in that term and let me read it again to you. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, those who don't obey the gospel. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly, formerly darkness, but now you are light in the, in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Here it is. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Remember last week, and I'm, I'm, I'm speaking from that parable of the soil and the seed in the soil and get down to the end. You know, nobody lights a lamp to put a basket out. And I asked the question, what's the fruit of a lamp? And, and, and you answered it. You said light. The fruit of a lamp is light, right? So when God comes and dwells and lights us up, we're not to hide that light under a basket. We're supposed to be projecting that light everywhere that we go. Okay? Now, here it says, you used to be partakers with these sons of disobedience, the ones who, who disobeyed the gospel, or maybe just wouldn't call Jesus Lord. For you were formerly darkness. Not, not even just walking in darkness, right? You were darkness. But now you are light. And, and the, the scriptures capitalize the L. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. The issue of the stupor, the issue of, of the greasy grace gospel maybe, may be that people haven't actually come into light. See, if you, can, if you can look at yourself in the mirror of God's eyes and see yourself as a fruitful branch, see yourself as emanating righteousness in those things that you don't do and those things that you do do, if I understand what verse 9 says, it's because you are light. And light produces those things. It says the fruit of the light is righteousness. So if you're born again, you will be righteous because the light produces fruit. So what if there's no fruit in your context or my context? Maybe there's no light. Is that something you should be ashamed of or mad at me over or God? No. It's like just get saved. And, and then the righteousness should just be a function of. I always had so much trouble. You know, pastors, teachers, people would say, you know, it's not by works that you're saved, but, but works would indicate that you are saved. And I'm like, eh, I don't get it. But now I'm starting to get it. The fruit of the light is works. Faith without works is dead because it's not real faith, saving faith. So it doesn't produce works. It's a test more than it is a condemnation. Like, you got no works, you need to have works. The answer isn't go do something. The answer is, are you light? Well, how do I know? That's a hard question. <laughs> you should have some works. <laughs> but I'll go do works. But that doesn't help you any. You could actually go do works and it won't help you any if you're not light. Because you can't, remember the beginning? You can't work your way into light. 
You can only trust your way into light. Commit your way into light. I made some comments in summary of the the previous messages. Like, Like the second week was about faithfulness. When he returns or you leave. Remember, there's two, there's two issues of being found ready. One is Jesus comes back, right? One is you go, right? He hasn't raptured the church yet, but your time comes. If you aren't found ready, and like my son Joe, like our brother Mikey Anderson, neither of them had any sense that one second from right now, I'm not going to be here. So we need to be ready Always, because not only don't we know when he's coming, but we don't know when we're going. I use the word faithfulness, but maybe the word isn't faithfulness. Maybe the word is faith. Will we be found in faith, not faithful doing something, but actually in faith such that we are something, that we're in Christ Then for last week's, I said faithfulness is indicated by fruitfulness. But maybe again, faithfulness was the wrong word. I mean, faithfulness is a right thing. For, I mean, a Christian should be faithful to God's word, to his expectations. But maybe it's faith, actual saving faith, that indicates fruitfulness. Or fruitfulness indicates faith. If you're wondering, am I saved or aren't I? How's your heart move when things of Scripture are presented before you? Is your, is your heart cold towards those things? Is it moved like emotionally, but it's not moved practically? The scripture says if, if your brother is in need, like for things that you have, and, and you don't provide those things that they need, but you say a prayer, how can the love of God be in your heart? It's probably not. And, and this one is a, a pet peeve of mine, maybe a little bit. And, and you can be mad, you know, if you want to, but I, I gain nothing from this, right? I mean, if you all just quit and went someplace else because you don't like the story that I tell out of the Bible, I'll go find a job and, you know, it'll be different. I, I like this job, but I have to give an account to God. Not just for me, I got to give an account for you. I mean, come on. You guys going to get me in trouble if you're not careful here. You know, I'm thinking big mansion. I care. I really do. I mean, I pray. I, I cry out to God for all you guys. And not because I got to give an account, but because, I, I, yeah, I'm convicted. I'm burdened. I'm, I'm wired now. It, it's, it's him in me. One of the things that I don't understand, I'm looking for my daughter. My daughter came home from youth group at the Freedom Center a few weeks ago. I mean, I love it. They're, she's f- sensing God there. And she said, you know, she's the, one of the Ukrainian girls, Daddy, I something Jesus today. They said, raise, I raised my hand, seven of us. They took us in a room. Next week, I'm going to get the water. I'm like, uh-uh. Maybe. You and I have to sit down a lot between now and then if you're going to be baptized next week. Because baptism doesn't happen before you're saved. Baptism happens because you're saved. Well, Daddy, I'm like, we need to talk. So she didn't want to talk. No baptism. It's okay. It's not ready yet. A couple days ago, we sit down, talking. I said, remember this thing? She says, yes. I said, let me ask you just a couple questions. Let's see if you're ready for the water, you know. How does a person, you said you had Jesus, how does a person get Jesus? Bible? I'm like, well, <laughs> no. Another question, another question. I say, honey, you can't make a deal with somebody when you don't know what the terms of the deal are. You, 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 you didn't get Jesus, and it's okay. But you can't go get baptized till you actually got Jesus. So, so that's my long story to say this. I could have that conversation with a lot of people that go to this church in, in the way that I would say, you know, hey, what do you think about, you know, the gospel of John? Bible? Or, you know, the book of Sam. You, don't, don't you just love the book of Sam? You know, I'm not sure I've read that one yet. There's no book of Sam, darn it. It's, the point is, right, 
No, no, it's a numbered Sam, though, and it's, okay, so, me, you guys can punch me back. Okay, the book of Frank, you know, the, the gospel of Judas, I don't know. The point is, people don't care so much about reading the Bible, right? But this says right here, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. What pleases the Lord? I don't swear. Okay, you know, you don't have to look too hard to find that one. I don't commit adultery. I don't steal. You know, Ten Commandments. The point is, if if you if you're light, but there's no passion to know how to please the Lord, what is it, God, that pleases you? I wrote you this book. If you will read the book, I've told people. I mean, from here a hundred times. I'm not trying to say I'm so wonderful, man. Come and talk to me. I'll sit with anybody. We'll just read together. Let, just, just so you'll read the scriptures, because I know this. If you'll start, and I'm not saying you're not. I don't know who does, and I don't know who doesn't. But the point is, this is what we have. And we have the Holy Spirit. But, but someone would say, well, I don't need the Bible because I have the Holy Spirit. It's like, in that case, you can have any spirit. And you have no way to test it. Because the only thing you can test the spirit against is the scriptures. So the spirit says, like the guy says, hey, you know, God told me I'm supposed to divorce my wife and <laughs> marry her. I'm like, no, he didn't. Yeah, he did. Where do you find that in the Bible? I don't need it in the Bible. I have the Holy Spirit. It's like God hates divorce. He didn't tell you that. But you got no scripture. You got no foundation. You got no rudder in the water. Your boat's flying all over every place. If we are light, there should be passion in us to know what does it that pleases you, God. We should read the scriptures. I don't understand. They don't make any sense to me. I don't care. You have the Holy Spirit. You will start to understand. That was me. I, pastor said, you need to read the Bible. I'm just stupid enough to do it. I start reading the Bible. I picked it up, right? Teresa bought me a Bible. I started at page one. It's a book. Guess what? You get all the ways into Genesis, and you find girls trying to get their dad drunk so that he could have some sons. I closed it up. I'm like, this isn't what I thought. This doesn't sound like church at all. She says, oh, no, no, you don't start there. Come here. You start over here. Don't move from this part till I tell you it's okay. I read that part. It wasn't as weird as the other stuff, but, but I didn't get any of it. But I just kept reading it. I got happy. I read a chapter. I got happy. I read three chapters. I got happy. I read a book. I was happy because I read something. I didn't, it didn't make any sense to me at all. And then the guy would preach, and he'd preach, and I'd read, and he'd preach. And all of a sudden, like a picture. You ever when you're a little kid, your, your mom or dad, they gives you a coloring book, and there's a bunch of dots on there with numbers on them. And you color the number from here to here and from this one to this one, and it's just nothing, nothing, nothing. All of a sudden, well, I think this is a bunny rabbit. And it starts to look like something. And you continue to connect the dots. You continue to connect the dots. And pretty soon it's more like a bunny rabbit. And then it's almost exactly like a bunny rabbit. And then it's like, there's no question that's bunny rabbit. You know, because you continue to press in and connect the dots. God isn't cheap. He, he will feed those that are hungry. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. If you're not hungry to know how to please God, you're going to wonder how to please God because he's going to satisfy those that are hungry, those that are passionate. He says that, that you must believe and know that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek after him. I don't know where I'm at in this whole sermon now. I'm just gone all over the place here. But the point of it is maybe, maybe the tension is that we don't understand not the part that says the one who practices righteousness isn't righteous, but the part that says, by grace you are saved through faith. And we think that grace just covers everything. But I don't think that's true. I think that God gives you a grace. He doesn't owe anybody salvation. Everybody has rejected him. Everybody has rebelled against him. Everybody has, has said they hate him in their actions, no matter what they say with their mouth. Everybody has, for all have sinned. He doesn't owe anybody anything. But because of his goodness... His son came, offered himself to carry, to take on the wrath of God associated with all of mankind's sin on our behalf. Not so that we could then, it's like, ah, you did these things, therefore you're separated from me. So if you'll just believe in my son, you go back and do whatever you want, 
and I'll just have you come in heaven someday. That's not grace. Grace is that he's offered us the opportunity to be saved. That is his grace. I looked him up yesterday. A hundred and how many? Forty-three or thirty-four? The word grace in the New American Standard. I read them all. One after the next. I want to have a sense for what is he really saying. Someone's going to push back on me. I want to be ready. I read them all. So anyway, the point is, grace is what he offers you to be saved. We don't even have it within us to respond without grace. He gives us grace to actually respond to the offer. And then, here's grace for the believer. Not a license to sin, but to the person whose heart is truly turned to Jesus, who for whatever reason, a broken heart, a fortress or a stronghold in the mind, stumbles into sin, grace doesn't cast you into hell. Grace allows you to sin even though you're saved, but doesn't give you a license to sin because you're saved. Understand? So... The gist of today's message, I don't have any sense for what's going to be next week now, but the gist of today's message is this, that maybe we've applied grace in our hearts to such a degree that we don't need to read the Bible because we don't have to please God. We don't have to have any concern to please God because of grace. That's why the stupor. Read Romans chapter 1 and 2 maybe, that, that God gave them over to what they wanted. And he gave them a hard heart, a stupor. They can't even see their sin because he's chosen to take his hand off it. The the blessing that we have to, to be convicted of sin and to know, oh my gosh. This is grace for the believer. We have some challenging stuff in our house with, you know, girls that have had some really... Hard, hard. I mean, really nasty stuff in their lives. And, they, and they've only come to us as teenagers, right? So the Lord is gloriously working through that. But can I just tell you, sometimes you just want to scream. I mean, you would just sometimes like to scream, you know, lots. And we're having a situation, and, and um, we're making some progress. And forgive me, you always get to be the bad example. You should preach and make me the bad guy sometime. And and Teresa's response to one of the girls isn't going to facilitate moving forward as much as it's maybe going to be like a speed bump in the process. Daughter goes up to bed. We're getting hugs before bed. She looks at me, and I'm just like, well, just let's just go to bed. And I, and I turn my back to her. Go to bed. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, this big giant fight, but there wasn't a whole lot of Jesus in me at that moment. So the next morning, you know, alarm goes off. I don't know, 5.15, I get up. I, I'm praying, and the Lord says to me, he like, he didn't say to me. All of a sudden, I start to relive that incident in my mind. Yeah. Oh, I know. It happens a lot. <laughs> but the point is, as I'm reliving it, I'm starting to get revelation. And what I heard the Lord say to me is, you didn't love your wife very well last night. And I said, I know. Oh. He said that you responded. Sometimes the four-letter word's the only one that really works. Forgive me. Maybe we turn the recorder off. No, don't do that. The, but you responded to her as if she was being bitchy. Right? But she wasn't responding because she's... You were seeing the response of a broken heart. And you could have been a vehicle to help to heal the heart. Or you could have been a vehicle to open that wound a little wider and dump a little salt in there. And and you chose to be the latter and not the former. I'm like, oh, man. So I continued to pray and worship. We were supposed to go somewhere together early that morning. I was pretty sure she wasn't going to go. And I hear a noise. I look, and there's trees. She's standing there. She's all dressed. She's all ready to go. And she didn't have any junk on her at all. Just beautiful as if I hadn't been a bonehead at all I got up and I I hugged her we give a hug and a kiss you know and I'm holding her and hugging her and she's like oh wow that's nice what's that for and I looked at her I said I love I didn't love you good last night see that's that's the fruit of wanting to know how to please God I still screwed up I still was a, a vehicle of yuck not a vehicle of glory and grace But I am forever asking the Lord to help me to be like Jesus. In that moment, not so much. In this moment, pretty good. The point is, I'm in that scripture every single day. 
Because I don't know how to please him if I don't know what he's like, if I don't know what he wants. And, and then I'm in prayer and worship every single day because if I'm not in the word and I'm not in worship, guess what? I think my wife is a bitch. Not a person with a broken heart that God is wanting to use me to help heal. And then what happens? Who likes to be around one of those? So you start to get separation. And now you've got separation between husband and wife and three broken daughters trying to figure out how to do life. And God gave you something to store it and you're just screwing it up all over the place. If there's not none of this practicing of righteousness or this, this passionate desire to please God in your heart, you're not condemned for that. But it's a sign that you should be aware of. Or, or maybe, maybe it's not that you're not saved, but remember I read the scripture that said, all right, you give that tree one more year. We're going to fertilize it. We're going to work on it. Holy Spirit's in there. But after another year, maybe we become like Romans chapter 1. So maybe it's not that a person's not saved, but maybe when a person got saved, this is why I hate, forgive me, I, I mean, I just don't like altar call salvations because somebody wanders in, raises their hand, prays a prayer with you, walks out, you don't know what, anything. No discipleship, maybe, maybe not. But they, they think they're saved. And maybe they are. But what if they're not? What if nobody's speaking this stuff into their life to cause them to have pause and wonder and then they die? because they don't know when their time is coming. And they stand before Jesus. Now, the guys that did all the miracles, right? They thought, we're dialed in. We've been doing this stuff. But Jesus says, I don't know you. Away from me, you doers of iniquity. So maybe, maybe if there's any of us that are in that spot, it's not like you're not really saved, but maybe it's like you're starting to develop a hardened heart and, and you don't even recognize it. And now is the time to get on your knees and repent. Cry out to the Lord for his forgiveness. Because he says, if you will, he'll forgive you. It's not an issue that can't be resolved. So that's what I think. Honestly, that's what I think the Lord brought us to this moment is that, that some of us are in a stupor. And, and we need to be woke up a little bit to see the truth that's in the word of God that says, listen, if you're not actually practicing righteousness, if you're not concerned with how you could please the Lord, he may not be your Lord. Lord. 